0: Time for another edition of Baseball and Beyond, and today it's Chip Carey. Hello, Chip. Nice to be back home. I was going to say, I was looking at your Twitter feed, and uh, you're just... Like, you're a tourist. You're out there taking pictures of the arch. But uh, I guess a lot of people probably don't realize you were uh, living here all
1: the way through high school. All the way through high school. Graduated from Parkway West with uh, less than honors uh, <laughs> back in the early 80s. But, yeah, uh, my mom still lives out in, uh, in St. Clair, Missouri, which is west of here. Uh, grew up in West County. My grandparents uh, lived and died in Frontenac. Still have aunts and uncles in Ladue. Uh, a lot of friends and family here in this part of the world so uh, it's nice to come back albeit only once a year unfortunately
0: yeah and we'll talk about the Braves in a little bit but I mean the Carey name is obviously a big name and uh how has that kind of been for you as you go along your career and know that Harry was this big bombastic guy and Skip was the other way and you're kind of building your niche and you've been doing this for a long time now? What has it been like for
1: you? Uh, you know, we know Joe Buck talks about it a lot in St. Louis. So we don't hear from you. What's it been like for you? Well, I think the mis- misperception of me and my family is that uh, unlike Joe or Tommy Brennan or even Kenny Albert, I didn't really know my dad or my grandfather very well. Both my parents and grandparents were divorced. Uh, My dad uh, went to Atlanta and really began his career. I stayed here in St. Louis with my mom and my sister and my mom's family. So I would see my dad uh, during the summertime and when the Cardinals would come to town. So I didn't really have that uh, sit at the right hand of my father and certainly not at the right hand of my grandfather learning the business. I got to learn about them kind of the way everybody else did, and that's by watching them on cable TV. And in the early 80s, fans in this area will remember. When GN and TBS and the real cable TV revolution, revolution started, uh, West County and St. Louis was uh, one of the last places to get the cable. And I got to come home from school like everybody else and turn on WGN and see the Cubs. And then uh, late at night after doing homework and getting ready for bed, would tune on, uh, turn on the TV and watch the Braves play the Giants or the Dodgers out on the West Coast. And that's kind of how I kept in touch with uh, uh, both of those guys. Um, growing up that way, it, it's what I knew. I, I don't have any resentment for toward it or, or uh, any animosity. Certainly, I missed uh, a lot uh, from a family perspective. Um, but I, I've really been lucky because baseball gave us a chance as a family to kind of, re, kind of reconnect. I was going to work with my granddad in Chicago. He passed away. Uh, after I left the Cubs, I got to go back to Atlanta and work with my dad for a couple of years starting in 2005. So while in many ways baseball sort of separated our family in so many more ways, it brought us together. And that's the part I try to concentrate on and remember.
0: Yeah. And that's what I was going to ask. Like, how hard was it to kind of get to that moment? Uh, and, and and possibly some guys would say, you know what, I'm my own guy, and those guys would their guy, but you seem to really want to follow. You got up to a, a night with in, at Wrigley, where you worked with all mm-hmm. both your grandfather and your and your dad. Was it something that really made you think, I really want to do this for myself, for them? How did that work?
1: Uh, no, I mean I, I was not at all tied to being a broadcaster. Uh, my maternal grandfather was a dentist here in St. Louis for 50 years, and was as big an influence in my life as anybody else. Roy Osterkamp was his name. And uh, he was as kind and gentle and giving and uh, uh, genuine a person as I'd ever encountered anywhere else in life. And I thought about going to medical school. Um, I I gave that some serious thought when I got out of college. My grades weren't good enough. I had all kinds of problems at home that uh, prevented that uh, academically from happening. This is the second time you've mentioned that
0: without honors and bad grades. That's why we all go into broadcasting, right? (laughs) I was a straight C student
1: in high school, but I was was certainly an uninspired student, that's for sure. Um, But then I got to College went to Georgia, and I had a, a journalism law professor who was extremely influential with me, and I uh, thought about law school. But I didn't want to stay in school forever. I loved baseball. I, I was gifted with a voice and uh, the ability to describe what I see and, and say it in, in, in somewhat coherent ways. Um, and I figured that baseball would be a great way for me to try to get into the business. And it didn't happen right away. I worked in uh, small cities and doing TV news and the weather and you know, learning and making mistakes. Uh, finally got a break with the Orlando Magic and did basketball. And then that turned into minor league baseball, which turned into Braves baseball, which has turned into this. So um, there was never any pressure in my family to do it. There was never any insistence that I do it. It was, at least from my dad's perspective, do whatever you want to do. In fact, there were times where he said, I really don't want you to do this because... I had two family members on national TV every day, and with all due respect to Joe and Tommy and anybody else, I had it twice as hard in that respect um, because, number one, I didn't know them. Number two, I didn't live where they lived. Number three, they were already very well established. And number four, I was trying to make my own way in a business where your own personality is your key to success or failure and that was the advice they gave me tell the truth and be yourself because if I try to be Jack Buck or Vince Scully or Harry Carey those guys were already on their way I had to figure out how to be me and uh that was wonderful advice.
0: The Orlando Magic we just saw a 30 for 30 on that mm-hmm. team and uh, I guess it had to bring back memories for you but I guess we forget that 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 was as close to a team taking out the Bulls as possible how much fun and then when you see that that thing was dismantled so fast, that, that had to be so much fun because it did rise from, from nowhere, a, a crazy expansion team that becomes a, a, a power with one of, the, well, one of the greatest of all time and, and one of the you know, top 100 of all time.
1: Well, I, I was really lucky. Bob Neal was a broadcaster with Turner Sports at the time of uh, the NBA expansion era with Miami and Charlotte and Minnesota and Orlando. And Pat Williams was at the NBA meetings and said to Bob Neal, we're looking for an announcer. And Bob Neal said, well, I, I got a name for you. And he said, "Me." And Pat said, "Who is that? Harry's nephew?" And uh, Pat uh, Bob said, "No, that's Skip's son." And my dad had worked with Pat Williams for one year as the GM of the Hawks. And. I got an interview, and with no experience, made it up, did kind of like Bob Costas with the Spirits of St. Louis, sort of lied about how much I'd done. They hired me. And to start from the ground up with an expansion franchise when everything is new, everything is exciting, and everybody's making mistakes, and everybody's learning on the fly, it was the best professional experience that I could ever have. And you're right, first couple years, they were terrible. The Magic, their first year, won 15 games out of 82, and I was worse than the team. Uh, But luckily for me, Pat Williams... uh, uh, you know, had faith that I would figure things out, and he was incredibly patient and helpful. And like the team, we got better, and we got better by drafting guys like Penny Hardaway and Shaquille O'Neal, and getting guys like Horace Grant, Dennis Scott, Nick Anderson, and it took off. And to, to answer your question about what it was like, it was uh, uh, like being thrown into a hurricane. Quite frankly, to go from little tiny Orlando that nobody knew about to. The biggest act in basketball almost overnight was really, really intoxicating. And as a result, I think for our players, um, it probably was too much too soon. The money and the ego and the jealousies and the petty stuff that went on uh, really did break apart. Something that could have been very, very good and very good for a long period of time. But uh, it's great to see that Shaq and Penny have reconciled. It's great to see that they are... Uh, Still very much uh, Magic fans. Uh, It's a great city. It's a great place to raise a family, which is what I've done. And uh, I I wish the Magic well, and I enjoyed my NBA time.
0: Do you have any, it's hard to do this on the fly, behind the curtain, great shack moment, something, yeah, yeah, anything that kind of stands out that you remember from a
1: road trip or anything? A million of them. Uh, One of them in particular, we had a game in uh, Atlanta, and there was a huge storm. It was one of those nasty uh, winter storms where the uh, uh, ice is all over the place. And we take off, and we're circling behind Tampa because the storm is passing through Orlando, and the the pilot said, we're not going through that. We're just going to circle for an hour, hour and a half until we decide to punch through. Well, the storm was moving slower than they thought so we finally did have to punch through and the plane is going up and down up and down i mean we're dropping a thousand feet going up a thousand feet guys are throwing up all over on the plane Shaq is uh in his 54th or 55th game which was twice as many games as he would play in a college season and he is wiped out he is on a couch asleep he slept through this whole thing but we hit a pocket of air and we had some food on the plane our food popped up off the plate and came down. Well, the same thing happened to Shaq. At 7'1", 300 pounds, we hit a pocket of air, and Shaquille O'Neal levitated about six inches off of his couch and landed with a very soft thud and never woke up. And we said to ourselves, how in the world is this possible? A, that he could be that tired, and B, not know what's going on. But uh, he was the life of the party. Everything you see of of his work on TNT and the way he acts, he was exactly like that as a teenager and a 20-year-old in Orlando. And Uh, was always great with me, Uh, great family, and overcame a lot himself to uh, to have a great family and great success, so I'm thrilled for him.
0: The Cubs, you go work for the Cubs, and uh, we all get to watch you here in St. Louis Mm -hmm. and across the country, of course, and then the Sammy and the McGuire thing. I still think, I don't care what people say about the era, it was so much fun, and I know it's kind of hard to even say that with, you don't want kids to do this stuff, but the fact that it was fun what was it like in chicago what was the the cubs point of view and and trying to ch- you know the whole chase it was a it was a st louis chicago thing it was a bringing baseball back i mean and then you get to call these home runs and you're having the,
1: the time of your life i would assume yeah it was it was bittersweet though because i was supposed to work with my grandfather and never got a chance to he died so he missed all of that and so i went from being uh uh, the guy that was going to host the pregame show and sort of a fill-in middle-inning guy and do the road games guy, to the guy that's sort of thrust into the seat with Steve Stone and national TV. It was hard uh, to follow Harry. I mean, almost, my dad always said there were two people who could have done it, him or me, and I was the guy that drew the short straw, if you want to call it that way. But uh, yeah, 98 was great. It came out of nowhere. Being a Cardinal fan, I had no really understanding or appreciation of the Cub culture, um, and Cardinal fans won. Cubs fans watched the Cardinals win. They didn't really know how to handle that very well. And to see this happen and go uh, from not much expectation to making the playoffs in the way that they did it in the final weekend in the playoff game and the one-game playoff at Wrigley Field and, and Mark Grace squeezing that ball and the utter joy that Cubs fans felt at finally getting into postseason play again. Uh, That was great. And you're right. The Maguire Sosa thing, we can say we knew and we can still say we can even say now we know we don't know. We don't know if guys are still doing it now. And while I'm not advocating it, I think that um, we have to sit back and just enjoy the moment for what it was. I don't compare McGuire and Sosa to Barry Bonds. I don't compare them to Babe Ruth or Lou Gehrig. They were what they were, and at the time they did it, it was great theater. The Cubs would play in the day. Sammy would hit a home run. McGuire would play at night. He'd hit a home run. It was great theater. It brought people back to the game. People were very disillusioned after 94 still. And uh, when the Cubs and Cardinals are good, baseball business is good. And it was great for business. It was great for me. It levitated my career. The Kerry Wood game um, was certainly a highlight, and watching those guys get together and and come out and, and be as good as they were so 98 was a very special year a bittersweet year but a very special year no doubt
0: and I just feel like when I go to Wrigley it's special I would imagine sitting up top when, when your grandfather's pictures above you every time they go to the seventh inning stretch was it sort of kind of pinch yourself type moments up there because and, and Steve Stone, we mm-hmm. all grew up on Harry and Steve and Skip and Pete Van Wear I mean that's more baseball was seen of Cubs and, and, and Braves out of anywhere. What was it uh, was it that kind of thing for you to be at Wrigley Field and, and knowing that the
1: the history and just being a cub announcer. Well, you got immersed into it right away. It was culture shock, like I said. And and it was hard because I'm in his booth. I'm working with his partner, sitting behind his chair, in his chair, in his desk, uh, with his director. I mean, all those people were Harry's guys. And uh, they welcomed me as best they could. But ultimately, it's a performance-based business. (laughs) You either can do it or you can't. Um, Steve Stone was phenomenal to me. We had one production meeting, and we drove. uh, It was opening day in Miami. And he rented a car, and he said... uh, how's this going to work? And I said, as far as I'm concerned, you've forgotten more about baseball than I'm going to know. The ball's in play. I'm going to say what happened. and You're going to tell me why. And that was pretty much the extent of it. So anyone who knows Steve, he has a very dry, almost sarcastic sense of humor. We finished the first game. I think the Cubs lost, shocker. And (laughs) Steve takes off his headset and throws it on the table and it makes this clunk sound. And I'm terrified. I'm looking at him like, what? He said, that was just great just like that. I said, what do you mean? And he leaned over and he shook my hand and he said, I want to thank you because with all due respect to your grandfather, for the first time in six or seven years, I feel like I'm on a broadcast team. And it was was an eye-opening moment because uh, there are a lot of people in our business who believe that a broadcast is about the play-by-play guy or the guy that talks the most. It's not. It's really about the fans, number one. But number two, to make it work, it has to be an analyst-driven game. And there was, uh, there aren't many better than Steve Stone. And he was, Fantastic to work with. My partner Joe Simpson's the same way. It's really easy to be a good play-by-play guy when you tee the ball up and hand him a seven iron and they hit it 150 down the middle. And I've really been blessed with all the people I've worked with to have that experience.
0: Yeah. Harry was a guy that seemed like didn't want anybody in the booth and I saw you took a picture of Jack Buck and Jack Buck even said he didn't he didn't let me do any of the moments. Yeah. But uh you grew up on Jack Buck. I mean, I would assume that's who you think about maybe more as a broadcaster. How does that work for you because Jack was the guy we all listened
1: to. Well, sure. I mean, I, I I was the typical AM transistor radio guy, Jack, and uh Bob Starr and Jay Randolph and Ron Jacober. I mean, I you know I know all the, all about that stuff, and it was, it was great. And you know, I, I'm not fully aware of the history of my grandfather and Jack Buck. I know it was at times prickly, but they they certainly um, made up at the you know the end of their respective careers, which is which is terrific. But um, you know, Harry was Harry was, from what I understand, a very difficult guy in this respect. Um, he was an orphan. He didn't have family. He didn't really understand the value of family until much later in life. He didn't understand parents, and his his dad left him when he was young. His mom died when he was very young, so he didn't really have that kind of upbringing. He was a hard scrabble street guy who had to fight for every single thing that he had in his life, and as a result, he was not the kind of guy that would turn the other cheek and. Um, people who didn't take the time to understand that about him uh, never got him. Um, but he, um, Harry, was in the business of being Harry. And my dad told a story to me years ago, obviously, that uh, he'd come home from college and he'd meet Dad at Sportsman's Park and they want to go have a bite to eat. And there he's signing autographs, Harry, 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 and he just... My dad said, I didn't want him to be hairy, I just wanted him to be dad. And it took him a long, long time to understand that difference, that it was okay to put the hairy persona in a box and let your hair down. You can cry, you can give somebody a hug and tell them you love them, um, and, I, and in a way, I feel very sad for Harry in that respect. He didn't—he didn't know that he had this whole support system of a family who cared about him as a patriarch, not as a broadcaster. And uh, I am at least glad at the end of his life that uh, Duchy, his wife, helped him introduce—helped helped introduce him to uh, how important that is. And, and I think uh, at the end, he got it. And then you and Skip got back together. So everything kind of worked out towards the end there. Absolutely. Correctly. Yeah. I left the Cubs and came back in '05 and got a chance to hang out with my dad. And, and it sounds so strange. Our business is great. Our, our career is great. Uh, we live in life sandbox, uh, but it does take a toll on your family. And uh, to be able to, in the last years of my dad's life, take him to the doctor, take him to lunch, drive him to and from the ballpark, pick up his bags and take him to his room, do things that any normal son would do, whether they're living in town or going to the grocery store or the hardware store. Uh, I never got that chance, really, until I was in my 30s. And uh, when I was able to hand my then newborn daughter to my dad at the airport gate one time, I I was bawling like a baby because it was almost like things had started to come full circle. And he and I were never estranged, uh, but we were apart because of our our geography, where we were in our lives, and this business. And as I said at the start, uh, the great thing about baseball is it always comes full circle, life always comes full circle, and for us the common thread of that was this great game and what we call the family business. Last
0: couple minutes, the Braves—you're their broadcaster now—and uh, I remember when they made the Matt Kemp trade. I said, "What are what are they doing?" And then I remembered there's a new ballpark going up, so this is obvious. But. Uh Seems like there is some sort of direction with the team, the trades they make. Just tell me a little bit about what we th- what we think of the Braves. Pro- probably in 2017, not not 2016. You know,
1: well, we hope so. we hope uh, 17. It may be longer than that. You know, who knows? Uh, the direction is very simple. Yes, we have a new ballpark, but uh, more importantly, the direction the team was going in in, in the last couple of years was not sustainable. Uh, signing free agents, making trades for established guys that are making big money just wasn't going to work uh the farm system was for the most part bare when John Hart took over uh 2 octobers ago so the strategy is very simple get back to the Braves way of doing things strong farm system high school pitching with upside make intelligent make smart trades um, and get younger, get more athletic. Um, we were very stagnant for a while. Is the product on the field representative of where we're going to be in two years? It better not be, otherwise there's going to be a new plan and new people implementing that plan. Uh, but The new ballpark will help. Matt Kemp was brought in because we can't hit home runs. They need power. Uh, if the Braves were to go out in the free agent market and try to sign a man that's going to hit 25 or 30 home runs, that'd be $30 million a year. Matt Kemp is going to cost them far less than that. So With John Coppolella and John Hart and John Sherholtz we have three very very smart guys who are being very very creative in the way that they make their transactions it may not make sense now but they are playing lottery tickets and they believe that when they make a trade they're getting better lottery tickets back than what they're giving up and we'll see if they're right we're confident that they will be it's just a matter of being patient in this twitter world with instant gratification it's going to take a little time but we'll be happy to get there Well, oh, that twitter world
0: well lastly i really appreciate your time but just what's next for you you're a braves broadcaster you've been doing this a long time it's a uh, it's a, a a broadcast booth that has been, because we've seen it, Ernie Johnson and Skip Carey and Pete Van Weren and Don Sutton. I mean, we all grew up on them. How do you see yourself here in the next 20 years? Are you a Braves guy for the for the hopeful, foreseeable future, and this is uh, where
1: you want to be for the rest of your life? Well, I sure hope so. I've got three kids about to go to college at the same time, so, yeah, I need all the work I can get. But I, look, I'm blessed. I'm lucky. Uh, I know that uh, um, I've had a great deal of help along the way, as we all have. Uh, I'm blessed to work with a great partner in Joe Simpson, and the people of Fox uh, couldn't have been nicer to me. Uh, I really didn't ever anticipate leaving the Cubs, but it was time to go. Uh, I hope that I can be in Atlanta for as long as they're, they're willing and the fans are willing to have me. Um, we've got a great team. We've got a good thing going, but ultimately, as we know in this business, crazy things happen. So I'd like to stay. Um, I hope to see the new ballpark and hopefully get the Braves back to where we're talking about winning championships instead of making trades in July. So uh, we'll see what the future holds. I'm very happy where I am, and we'll see where we go. And I forgot
0: to mention I love Swung On Belted. I think that's <laughs> a wonderful call. Uh, well, thank you. <laughs> well,
1: hopefully, we have a few more before the weekend's out here Not in, St. in St. Louis.
0: Yeah. St. Louis. Uh we thank Chip Carey for joining us on Baseball and Beyond. Keep subscribing on iTunes and follow me at Brad Strabinger. Thanks for listening. See you next time.